You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. At the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, two things quickly became clear. First, this would not go according to Vladimir Putin's plans. Russia has met fierce resistance every step of the way and has been forced to retreat from its attempt to take the Ukrainian capital. Second, it became obvious that misinformation would play a role in what we learned and did not learn about the situation on the ground. Russia, you may recall, has some experience in this area. Russian troops have been gone from the city of Bucha near Kiev for more than a week, but the evidence of atrocities there is still being unearthed. So when reports from cities that were heavily bombarded began to indicate that Russian troops had committed war crimes, brutal war crimes I won't describe here, the Russian propaganda machine kicked into gear. Those crimes, it said, were actually perpetrated by Ukrainians, desperate to blame Russia for its role in the conflict. Now, depending on where you get your news, it can be difficult to see through the fog that Russia is deliberately stirring up. They don't necessarily need you to believe their version of events. They just need you to doubt a little bit what happened in places like Mariupol and Bucha. The best way to see through that fog is to ask someone who has been there to see the devastation and the evidence, but also to see incredible bravery from ordinary Ukrainians. So six weeks into this conflict, what is happening? How is Ukraine doing? How long can their resistance hold out? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Stuart Bell is a reporter with Global News Online. He recently returned to Canada from Ukraine. Hi, Stuart. Good morning. Can you maybe take me back a ways to before you left for Ukraine? You know, you're you're planning to go over there. It's been really tough, at least for us, to tell from here what's real, what's exaggerated, what's faked. What did you expect as you prepared for the trip? Well, I mean, you never know until you get there, and that's really why we go. But um, I guess knowing Russia was involved, uh, and given Russia's record in places like Chechnya and Syria, it gives you a pretty good idea what what you're going to be seeing. Um, Russia's also a disinformation machine, so you know that you know whatever the Russians are doing, they're probably lying about it. Uh, you can expect that you'll see uh, the things you'll see on the ground will probably be a lot worse than what you thought. Before we go through um, your reporting from the trip, maybe you could outline quickly, you know, where you went while you were there and the kinds of stories you were hoping to tell, just to get a sense of where you were in the country and what you were looking at. Yeah, sure. I started in Poland and then went into West Ukraine, and that became kind of a base of operations. Uh, From there, I roamed a little bit to some outlying towns, and then eventually uh, I teamed up with Jeff Semple from Global National, and we went across the country to... Uh, Mikolaev district, Dnipro, Kharkiv, right on the Russian border. And then we made our way up to Kiev. And the mission was basically to, for me, was to find stories that would connect readers in Canada with, you know, with what was happening there. The the kind of big sweeping headlines 
Now, those are being covered off by wire services and, and reporters in the capitals. And I was kind of looking for those little stories of people, you know, that just have stories that are relatable to Canadians, whether it's a family taking their kids to Poland and what that's like, or, you know, I did a story on a father um, who was burying his son who'd been killed in a Russian airstrike. Hmm. So it's that kind of thing, just those little, um, those little very personal stories that I think help readers far away to relate to what's happening in a place like Ukraine. What about your own safety? We've seen stories during this war, um, obviously, of journalists intentionally or not um, being injured and even killed. Uh, as you ventured into sort of the hotspots in the eastern in eastern Ukraine, um, what did you do to make sure you were safe? Well, uh, we had a, um, as most journalists do in these types of situations, you have a fixer who is a local guide and translator whose job is to you know, help you get the stories, but also to help keep you out of trouble. And uh, so we had a very good fixer. We had with us also a, um, the company had sent with us a security advisor, I guess, which is a new experience for me, but he was basically there to help us, I guess, decide if we're going somewhere, which, you know, take this road and not that road. Um, he was also a medic. So if anything happened, he, his job was to patch us up and get us to a hospital very quickly and tell us when to put our body armor on and when to take it off and those kind of things. So for the most part, you know, he was just there for comfort. There, there were, there was one moment in particular where we were in an area in Kharkiv that had been really devastated by Russian shelling. Uh, there was some shelling that was happening. We could hear it. And we, um, we had with us a guide from the Ukrainian forces who was in one of our vehicles, and we uh, we made our way away from that area. We were going through a bunch of apartment blocks that had been destroyed, and all of a sudden uh, we heard shooting. I thought it was the Ukrainians engaged in some kind of gunfire with the Russians, but they were. Turns out they were shooting in the air because they didn't know who we were, and they were trying to stop us. And um, so they eventually stopped. Or. Ukrainian military guide hopped out and explained to them that we weren't Russians. It was okay. Uh, and then they told us we had a flat tire. So my car that I was driving had uh, run over some glass. There was so much glass strewn across the roads because it had all been blown out of the apartment buildings that um, I got a flat. And so I didn't really want to jump out in an area that was being shelled to change a flat. So Basically, the security guy we had with us kind of took over, and we drove out on the rim of the the wheel till we got out of out of the way and uh, got patched up. As you began your reporting, um, do you remember the first thing that you saw that that made an impression on you as being different from your expectations or different from the reporting uh, that you'd seen before you left? I think what really struck me was the kind of familiarity of as a Canadian uh, of the setting. Hmm. You know the. The major cities in Ukraine look very European. You know, you could be walking in old Montreal, um, but then these, you know, air raid sirens go off, missiles come in, and it's kind of that contrast between the, I guess, the familiarity of the setting, and and the strange strangeness of the events. That's that I found kind of unsettling. Tell me about some of the Ukrainians that you met, because one of the things that I keep fixating on is uh, how the world and and coverage um, around the world has kind of turned them into almost, you know, mythic figures of toughness and resilience and resistance. How did that square up with, you know, real people that you met on the ground who are obviously uh, in danger? 
Yeah, no, I know what you mean about that narrative, and I, and I was dubious because I'm I'm skeptical of a lot of things, but um, the reality is the the defiance of the Ukrainians is is very very potent. I mean, pretty much everywhere you everywhere you go, you see people doing something to resist uh, the Russians. Can you give me some examples of those? Yeah, sure. I mean, every city has a number of these volunteer centers, basically, where people can go to help out in various ways. And you go there and you just see amazing images like, uh, you know, old ladies bringing in trays of varenki, which are like sort of Ukrainian pierogi, basically. Bringing them in to these centers, they've made them at home. They're bringing them in for the soldiers so they don't go hungry. <clears throat> I remember going to to one center, volunteer center. It was just filled with young people. They were playing, you know, music, loud, just seemed to be, you know, uh, it's hard to say having a good time, but I mean, they were young people doing their thing and they were making these camouflage nets that uh, they get sent out to the troops to kind of drape over their whatever war machinery they have to disguise it from above. So you kind of see these things and you think, wow, um, <laughs> these people are really united. Um, it kind of gives you the sense that, you know, Putin can do what he wants, but these are not people that are going to be easily defeated. A lot of those stories came from the early days of the war, and it's dragging on now. I mean, it's been at least six weeks. You know, we're we're going to get closer to two months. How long can Ukrainians keep that mentality? You know, the, uh, the yeah, not having a good time, but, um, you know, playing loud music and, and just sort of resisting through it all. Like, I can't imagine uh, how they keep that up for so long. Yeah, it's a good question. But I think, um, you know, the Ukrainians basically won the Battle of Kiev. Uh, they forced Putin to recognize that his plan A to take over the country in five days or whatever it was, was just not going to happen. Right. And even though I think you're right to some extent, it's hard to sustain that kind of uh, zeal. But um, on the other hand, I think the success at kicking the Russians out of the capital area, the whole north basically, has given them a bit of boost. Uh, it's, it was a confidence builder to to have that kind of success. So, I mean, after six weeks, I don't think the Ukrainians have lost their will. Um, if anything, they've probably picked up a bit of confidence, but they are, I think what's more concrete is the need for supplies, particularly weapons. And you saw Zelensky this morning, who was just basically begging the West for more weapons as the war transitions to the east, they're they're going to need a lot more. And you know they've they've been fighting for six weeks. They may have used up a lot of what they had. So I think uh, you know that's that's where the reality is going to hit. Is do they really have the the war machinery to carry on against uh, a larger uh, foe? Did you see that on the ground? Evidence of supplies running low or them you know, hoping, begging for more? I can't say I saw supplies running low. I mean, I saw the opposite. I saw, you saw in-law missiles lying around and um, I saw a Russian tank being uh, towed away from from the front on the back of a truck. But you do, whoever you speak to, you do hear that same line, um, just basically begging for, for support, making sure the West understands that, that if they're going to see this through, they're going to need a lot more help on the military side. One of the reasons we really wanted to talk to somebody who'd been on the ground over there from Canada is 
all the evidence we've seen, particularly in the past couple of weeks, um, that seems to point to war crimes committed by Russian forces and and some pretty horrible stuff on the ground uh, in Mariupol and, and Buka. Um, did you see any evidence of that in person? And, and, and what was the discussion like amongst Ukrainians about it? Well, I certainly did hear the testimonies of <clears throat> Ukrainians that we spoke to who had witnessed these types of things, including out of people coming out of Mariupol. But, I mean, what I saw in person with my own eyes um, was pretty convincing. I mean, houses, apartment blocks, courts, government buildings, playgrounds. I mean, really civilian buildings with no military value that had been attacked by the Russian forces and in some cases completely destroyed. I mean, the, the Russian tactic has been they, they try to capture a city and if, they, if they're not successful – they just encircle it and then pound it with artillery and rockets and missiles. And that's certainly been their tactic. And, you know, that is 100% a war crime. I mean, to target civilian infrastructure like that, uh, to go after civilians, whether it's, you know, a maternity hospital or, uh, you know, those kind of buildings. Um, I mean, that, this, is, this is classic war crimes. What do you think about the narrative that we've seen pushed by Russia and uh, people allied with it, that some of this is crimes committed by Ukrainians to then bring to the international media to make Russia look evil? Well, Russia is a well-known disinformation factory. Some of it's for their own domestic consumption for political purposes, but a lot of it is meant just to sow kind of discord and disunity in the West with the goal of undermining the West. This has been a long-standing Russian tactic. Um, it's why we see things like, you know, Russian state-affiliated news sites feeding conspiracy theories about things like COVID-19 and vaccines. Um, so they're well-practiced in this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Certainly in this conflict, they've been spinning their own conduct uh, in ways that are just, just don't meet reality. I think there's been a lot of fact-checking done by very credible uh, news agencies into things like what happened in Bucha and and um, the Russian version of events has been thoroughly discounted. You also uh, put together a couple of pieces about Canadians uh, who are on the ground in Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about who went over there and why and, and what they're doing? Well, I mean, as you know, there's a big Ukrainian diaspora in Canada. Uh, a lot of Canadians have family ties in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And we did run into quite a few people like that who were in Ukraine helping out in various ways. Um, you know, we, we hear, you often hear about the sort of foreign fighters who have gone uh, and uh, joined the international brigades. And some of them are quite outspoken about what they're doing. They're They're on social media. But, you know, when when you're there, you realize that maybe the people that are having even more impact or people that are just very quietly doing small things, like there was a woman from Alberta in Poland who was just taking in women and children, uh, refugees, and giving them a place to stay. There was a fisherman from Nova Scotia who was just driving materials like baby food and diapers and things like that to frontline communities. Hmm. So there's quite a few people that are just... Uh, just doing their thing and not necessarily seeking the limelight, but uh, just feeling really compelled to help out in, in some way. 
How much does the Ukrainian effort kind of depend on that? You know, we see a lot about uh, soldiers or, or non-soldiers taking up arms and heading to the front lines. Um, but there are a lot of stories about everything that needs to happen for them to get there being done by ordinary citizens. You mentioned a couple of them yourself. Yeah, well, there is a vast volunteer effort that has harnessed just ordinary Ukrainians to to keep the frontline towns and the soldiers equipped. So, I mean, it's a, it's a really mass mobilization of, of people. I mentioned everything from, from old ladies making f- food to, um, you know, to people donating body armor and that kind of thing. So, yeah, within that infrastructure, there are Canadians that are playing a role in various ways. You know, sometimes it's just collecting money from friends in Canada, going to a pharmacy, buying a bunch of stuff, that a hospital needs and, and sticking on a, on a train mm-hmm. to get there. So all those, just all those little things that are helping out in various ways. And, and sometimes I kind of wonder if it's not having a bigger impact than, than say soldiers uh, coming from uh, other countries, particularly if, if they don't have a lot of experience, but right. uh, and taking up arms. Did you talk to any Ukrainian troops about those soldiers from other countries? There have been a lot of stories about some of them come over with all their equipment ready to go, and there are others who seem to show up uh, with almost nothing, expecting to be equipped and sent into battle. Yeah, so there's two types of foreign volunteers. There's There are people who are arriving who have combat experience, and they really have something to offer, and they're just... A lot of them are Ukrainian Canadians who've served in the Canadian military. And um, they're just being basically um, sent right to the front lines in various positions. And, but there's also um, people that have just no experience at all, really probably have no right to be to be there in the first place and mm-hmm. maybe causing more problems than than they're solving, who, who have showed up just wanting to fight. And, uh, you know, you often see these types in social media. Uh, I'm not sure to what degree they're contributing, but they, you'll notice the Ukrainians have changed the rules um, for their international legion, where basically if you don't have combat experience, you're not you're being screened out at the beginning. So uh, there was an early wave of of people who of volunteers who just wanted to help who really had no experience. Uh, that's changed now in the last few weeks, where those people are no longer. Um, they're being weeded out at the at the beginning of the interview screening process. Before we close, I want to bring it back to uh, the Ukrainians on the ground. You know, we talked about toughness and resilience. How do they balance that after six weeks with what must be very real grief for so many of them as the casualties have started to mount and as as certain cities have been hit so hard? Um, You mentioned you were with a father burying his son. Like, you know, this is more than what happens in the media. Yeah, I don't know how they do it. In fact, uh, the, the the father who buried his son, who I I followed, I met him at a church um, in Lviv, and he he was at a different funeral, and he said, you know, I'm coming back tomorrow to bury my son, who was in the Ukrainian forces, and wow. so I said, can I can I come and can I follow you to your village? And he said, sure, and and that was an incredibly moving experience, and. But my point uh, I'm trying to get to is that a week later, his other son, who was also in the military, was killed uh, and in a, also in a Russian airstrike. And he had to go through that whole process again, twice within a week. I just can't, I can't even imagine, mm-hmm. you know, what that's like. And I think, you know, Ukrainians recognize their ge- geographical circumstances. You know, they're, 
they've been handed this situation where they're stuck between Europe and uh, an increasingly authoritarian Russia. You know, they a lot of them remember the Soviet Union, and especially since 2014, they've they've kind of been turning more to Europe and away from Russia. Uh, a lot of people express that they want to be part of Europe. They don't want to be dragged into the Russian orbit. And in my experience, that was true, even in uh, Russian-speaking areas close to the Russian border, which are the places that Putin claims that he's liberating. We met people who who said things like, uh, you know, I've, spoke, I've spoken Russian all my life, but since this has happened, I'm not using the language. I'm trying to make an effort to only speak in Ukrainian. Hmm. And that speaks to the extent to which uh, I think Ukrainians are you know, this conflict has really just give them a, a distaste for being within that Russian orbit and, and made them want to gravitate even more so towards Europe. One of the last things I want to ask you about is, is almost the flip side of that coin. You mentioned at the beginning of our chat um, that Ukrainians had pushed uh, Russian forces back uh, away from Kiev, the capital, and and you kind of saw what that was like in the aftermath of it. Tell us what you saw on the ground as uh, as Russian forces retreated. Well, I mean, I was there just as the Russians were were leaving uh, the areas around Kiev, and you know, Kiev was still pretty empty. Uh, the streets were pretty quiet. Uh, a lot of places were closed. Uh, but it was, you could see it was beginning to come back to life. People who had, uh, who had fled the city were coming back. Uh, the sidewalks, there were, you saw people walking around, taking buses. Uh, restaurants were reopening. Um, you know, people were pretty wary, as you can imagine, you know, especially if they had kids. They were, you know, they were not going to take a chance in case things turned around. Um, but there was definitely a sense that there was, you know, things were, were returning to normal. Uh, to some degree anyway. So, um, and I imagine, you know, in, since I've left there, the Russians have completely left that area. So, you know, also in the Western um, part of the country where a lot of people have fled, it's pretty crowded as a lot of people have gone to places like Lviv and they're living with family and friends and it's, you know, it's not comfortable. Uh, So I think in the last week or so, there've been a lot of people that have been leaving the Western areas and going back to uh, to Kiev now that the Russians are gone. Last question. What do you think differently or see differently about this conflict uh, now that you've been over there and, and you're safely back in Canada? I guess, I guess I was really struck by the, the Russian military. Um, you know, I grew up Hollywood and cold war narratives that made the Russian army out to be this really powerful, determined force and, you know, if that was the case, um, this conflict really suggests that those days are gone. Uh, it turns out the Russian army is uh, poorly equipped, unmotivated, um, inept in some cases, and, and badly behaved. Um, I mean, we've seen in the last week or so, they've left a trail of evidence of war crimes that will probably be picked apart for years to come. You know, video of troops looting stores and homes. Um, we, we're hearing accounts of uh, rapes, mm-hmm. the bodies of execution victims with their hands bound, you know, train station attacked, maternity hospital attacked. So, I mean, the Russian army, 
I still find it frightening, but not for the reasons that I, I did before. Stuart, thanks for your time today, and thanks for the work you did over there. Yeah, thank you very much. Stuart Bell of Global News Online. That was The Big Story. For more from us, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. And if you want to email us, check this out. I don't have to give you a convoluted email address anymore. You can find us by writing to hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. Isn't that much better? I will sleep better tonight. You can also find The Big Story in your favorite podcast players, and you can ask your smart speaker to play The Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. So pleased to have a real email address. We'll talk tomorrow.